Hello, and welcome to the Four Color Nerds comic podcast, episode 51. I'm Carissa, and I'm joined by the other nerds, Ryan. Hello. And Rory. Hey. Christina is off musicking it up right now. So together, we take on this week's comics. Each week, we read a variety of comics and gather here to discuss them. This is a review show, so there will be spoilers. If you don't want to hear spoilers, take a break now, go read your week's books, and then come on back. Each week, one of us picks their favorite book, and that's our pick of the week. This week, I am that nerd. And this week's pick goes to Reborn, number one. Our companion song is Till Death Do Us Party by the Groovy Ghoulies, because there's a line that says, one, two, three, five, no one here gets out alive, six, seven, nine, ten, reincarnate, do it again. And if you read the book, it will totally make sense why that line is completely fitting. Take a listen, and let's get into it. One, two, three, five, no one here gets out Reborn, number one. Image Comics, written by Mark Millar. Pencils by Greg Capullo. Inks by Jonathan Glapion. And colors by Foucault or FCO. We're not sure which. We tried to research. It did not work. Polencia. <laughs> this is another Mark Millar space opera odyssey. How he has the time to do all of this and be amazing, I do not know. <laughs> Though it doesn't start off like that. So it looks like we're in middle America early 2000s and it's like snipers happening people just start getting taken out left and right and you're like okay this is a pretty gruesome start to a book but okay let's see where it goes those headshots are brutal yes right off the bat what he is known for it looks like cinematic is a movie storyboard people are dying and then it cuts to some other world people are waking up and they look very different and they're like we can't talk about that right now because we have this and there's like an army approaching these people the battle of helm's deep is getting ready to take place basically and then it just cuts back again to the real world and you're like what the fuck was that you basically see different stories of people dying tragic unexplained start following a story of like a narrative from this older woman's point of view named bonnie she's scared of death she doesn't have dignity in going to death like her friends do she doesn't want to die in the stroke ward where she's at still smoking though <laughs> she doesn't really look good for her age her husband was one of the people we saw in the beginning panels that got shot her recounting her life story basically there's a couple of panels of pictures of what's going on her playing with her dog and her dad her first kiss to her husband just like her happy moments least saying that she doesn't think she has any place in this world those are really strong panels that is excellent excellent storytelling yes it is Absolutely. And I'm not surprised because I feel like Mark Millar does really great storytelling. So, yeah, those panels were fantastic. And the thing is, though, they circle back around later on. Like, I knew exactly when it said the dog's name later on that I'm like, oh, yeah, it's from that panel again. Roy boy. Even though it was just one panel that where it was mentioned, it was so easy to make that connection. Because sometimes you read and you kind of skip over little details like that. I think everything here is packed with such emotional weight and truth to the panels that it really sinks in. So she's sleeping and she's staying at the retirement home. She has another episode, a stroke, and they're rushing her off. And she's like, is this how it goes? You know, there'll be no pain. She's saying how before she wasn't very religious, but she finds herself saying, Jesus, I've always said something like that. If I'm hanging off a bridge, I'm pretty sure I'm going to say, oh, God, help me. It's just a reaction. It's something that you just say, you know, whether you're super religious 
this or not. And I think there's also like a lot of like cultural training to do that. Yeah. Whether it doesn't necessarily mean that you now believe, you know. Then there was this one panel that I thought was really weird. So there's like this, the big surgery overhead lights that you would get when someone's operating. There's this person who's not in that scene because everyone else is in scrubs. And it's like this older gentleman in a suit and he just tells her like, don't worry, you're doing good. And that's so kind of creepy and mysterious. So the panel goes black, which I thought was really interesting. And then there's this really cool panel almost like a zoetrope of all her memories and then it's starting to break down and crystallize and like fall on her it's like this weird rain that would be great being filmed it is a really neat panel and then she wakes up weird space fantasy bonnie has like this really cool outfit basically yeah we wake up back at the helm's deep sci-fi fantasy war and there's like a ship and it's really dead centering on her and she clearly is discombobulated from the experience because she's young and hot now and not in a retirement home looks like some thor reject is saves her it's like get down ma'am <laughs> pew pew yeah there's laser ships there's dragons there's yeah. battle axes it's so cool looking she saved lots of like you know battles happening and once all that's cleared there's like these weird space zombie things like goblins or orcs whatever those are and they recognize her in her outfit saying basically she's like their chosen one their protector that they, all these people have been waiting for and so they basically like retreat like their wizard basically says get them out of here and they leave and then all those people start gathering around her and this cute little like falcor battle cat dog that's white comes running to her and someone calls calls it Roy Boy. And I was like, what? And the Thor reject that saved her ends up revealing that it's her dad. And this is basically where we start making the connections that when everyone dies, like fully, you kind of get the hint at the beginning where you fully get the thing that when you die, basically you're reborn as a younger, cooler, badass version of yourself in this reality, future. I don't know what this is. You, you don't really explain that. But apparently they all been waiting for her a long time. Basically it ends with let's go see the others. So maybe she'll be reunited with her honey. Maybe he moved on and that will be a storytelling point. I am very interested to see what happens. I think it's a really interesting kind of concept. Mark Millar has his hooks in me again. The storytelling on this is what really drugged me in as a whole, like not necessarily the writing or the uh, artwork, but they both in conjunction really tell like, an awesome story. It really drug its hooks into me. You know, just like those initial scenes, like Bonnie, like her death scenes, like was really like emotional and stuff like that. And awesome. Well done. This is an awesome one. I, I can't wait to see what the hell they're going to do with this. Mark Millar always does action and cinematic stuff really well. Personally, I think his biggest weakness is sometimes you don't really care about the characters very much. In this, he made me care about these characters right from the beginning. He put the heart in this one. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you ever read Starlight. It's another one of his sci-fi books about old people becoming younger, badass versions of themselves. Weird cocoon. Brian K. Vaughn's inner voice is like a 15-year-old girl. That's who he writes preteen teenage girl that's who he writes really really well and it's becoming clear to me that when mark miller writes older people kind of at the end of life that kind of sadness that they have that he knows that really well which is surprising because he's not that old so maybe he's you know had some stuff he's working through with his parents or grandparents i don't know but he's doing a hell of a job on this one this one grabbed me from the very beginning art's fantastic the writing is gripping tells stories that cut right to the heart of the truth of what life basically i guess you would say yeah, yeah it was just intriguing i cared what was happening i wanted to know more and it told a lot but it didn't seem like it was too verbose in it like it told a lot in a short little bad time it was like very concise still in depth impactful storytelling like just one panel will tell you more than like a single issue of another rambling comic book 
I gave it four and a half Roy boys. Oh. <laughs> Did I take yours? Probably going to use that. That's all right, so. I'm going to give it uh, four and a half light switches. I will give it four and a half battle axes to the dragon's head. That was awesome. <laughs> space dragon. Greg Capullo is just going nuts, drawing spaceships and dragons and <laughs> swords and laser beams and goblins and... Space wizards. He's having a field day with this. <laughs> And doing a hell of a job, too. It's crazy. That's what I know. That's the only thing I know. Crazy awesome. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Crazy awesome. Alrighty. I believe Rory's taking us on to something a little bit more... Grim. I've got the Black Monday Murders number three image comics advocate for a lesser man. Written by Jonathan Hickman. Pencils and inks by Tim Coker. Colors by Michael Garland. Now this one, in all actuality, my typical format where I'm, you know, explaining what goes on, this one's actually kind of difficult to do. As awesome of a scene as it is, it is all just a couple of characters sitting around an interrogation table. A big chunk of it is just reading dossiers, though, too. This is 56 pages of comic book goodness, so this is two or three issues normal length. And it is people just talking to each other. And don't get me wrong, it's amazing to read, but it's just hard to really tell back. What happens is that Victor Esco has been arrested by the police for murder, and they think they've got him. So they're sitting outside just basically talking about how, like, oh, we've got him dead to rights. We're going to send this detective in, who I guess is Detective Fuck-Up, apparently. The chief is like, even he's going to get this one. They come in, and they show him what they've got, and he's cooperative. So he agrees to cooperate, but he's kind of like speaking in riddles when he's talking to the initial detective, talking about how he's a banker and how he's been stealing money for a very long time. He's going on for a while, just kind of like speaking riddles until he basically pisses off the detective. The detective decides to give him a slug. That's the best way I could really sum up that scene. There's a lot more going on. It's like cat and mouse back and forth with like a very powerful, crazy person. So you've got the detective who knows that he's got this guy nailed to the wall. He's purposely egging him on and insulting him. Yes. He's basically just prodding him until he breaks. <laughs> Fucking with him the entire time. He ends up slugging him. The guy initially was asking for a lawyer anyway. Later on, they bring him in. Then you go to the sister. For some reason, I really like this part. I thought the reveal when they pulled that body out of the slab was really awesome. So did I. That scene actually is the first time where I really felt what you guys have been saying all along, that maybe other people can't see her. That's the first time, like, I really, to me, felt like you guys probably were right about that. Cause, yeah, because she's just standing there. And- she's doing weird shit that people should be commenting on. Before, she just kind of stood in the background, and you're like, yeah. well, one way or the other. Could be people can't see her, or she's just not interacting with anybody. But here, she's, like, sniffing the corpse and, yeah. you know, doing all kinds of weird-ass shit that you think somebody yeah. would be like, exactly. please don't touch the body. Still speaking out loud in weird tongues, and you think the guy would be like, what was that? You think that it would get some sort of reaction. It's interesting when he pulls the cover off is like he's got a giant tattoo on his body that's those weird alien symbols of that forgotten tongue, which that was a pretty awesome uh, little real reveal there for that short scene. Then, yeah, dossier, dossier, dossier. I'm not even going to bother going through all that stuff. It was interesting. I liked when they blacked it out that they left certain words, almost like a hidden message. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was pretty cool. But that goes on for like a full issue. 
I know. It is. I'm like, I feel like I'm just reading a book. Where's the comic? Sometimes I'll like put stuff in that like at the ending. I was like, is it over already? Was that like the big thing? Nope. 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 <laughs> they bring in another detective, the one who had previously found out what one of the words had meant. Dumas comes in and he starts talking with them and the lawyer's trying to shuck and jive. They start telling him that they use as his official story that two of the gentlemen that were with him were actually like twisting his arm, putting him under duress to like let him into the building. The detective basically flat out says at one point or another that I don't believe your story, but I don't really care. Let's talk about this. And then he pulls out the language, which makes Oresco put on this big ass smile. And so he starts asking him about the meanings of what's on there and he tells them that he's actually been reading the wrong books and he's got it wrong and that what it says is we know and then yeah then they show the scene of him cutting a guy's throat who had been murdered the brother and then drawing shit and blood on the wall and revealing his own tattoo it shows that they had the foresight to basically bring well-known thugs from interpol as escorts so they could basically make them the fall guys later so he would be innocent exactly and he even says like earlier on when he's talking to the lawyer he indicates that it's like he's already got a game plan for this whole thing so he's thinking well ahead of everybody else making sure that he gets what he wants the lawyer tries to stop him from saying what he's saying because Oresco's like gotten to the point where he's like just kind of like dumping all the secrets out on the table nags the pen from the lawyer stabs himself in the hand and then draws a symbol on the table which mind controls the lawyer and then he says bang your head onto the table until I tell you to stop The lawyer begins banging his head on the table, and he's telling the detective, if it's the truth you seek, the problem you have is that you started with a lie. This isn't about a murder, it's about murders, like endless numbers of them, and he starts telling about how the whole Wall Street industry is built on human sacrifice. And those series of panels, him talking, then the one with the thunk, and then him talking, the one with the thunk, and then he's the side of his face getting slowly more splattered with blood is powerfully good drawn they panels. were masterful I, oh, love, I loved it the when the lawyer's trying to stop him right he goes to like grab his arm to tell him to shut up and he's like don't touch me you fucking slave and yeah. then like grabs the pin and i thought he stabbed the lawyer's hand at first but no it's his hand where it shows the guy slamming his head on the table at first this is all in my opinion from the detectives you looking at them at first you're looking at both of them because it's really shocking what happened but then Mm -hmm. as the guy starts talking you stop paying attention to the guy just slamming his head on the table because that is completely unimportant to what's actually happening he's got his full attention i thought that was really good panel work like you didn't need to see what's happening you knew what was happening well you could see the spatters developing over his face which was awesome so subtle there's like a slow sinister smile that's growing on his face as the panels descend i was like oh that's so good yeah victor resco is the wrong person to fuck with <laughs> well and also as that guy's bashing his head in he's both getting like splattered with with blood and it mm-hmm. doesn't phase that guy at all no. nope. <laughs> ain't my first time at the rodeo this was the interesting thing to me was in the end they end with like it's not really artwork it's more writing and they're talking about on the moon there's this giant underground base with hundreds of thousands of people it says 800,000 inmates and they're basically being re-educated for whatever use they have so that like takes it to like a whole new creepy level right there for me just when you think you're starting to get your you know mind around this mystery nope you don't know jack shit about what's really going on uh-huh. yeah. so i'm gonna give it four and a half spatters of blood on the face gave it four we know i will give it three and a half the letter ice 
And I believe, Ryan, you're taking us into... More <laughs> dark betrayal More murder. and murder. And <laughs> Murderpalooza, I think, is what this week is. But a, a highly anticipated volume, I believe. This is Darth Vader number 25 from Marvel Comics, book 5, part 6, End of Games. Written by Kieran Gillen, pencils by Salvador LaRocca, colors by Edgar Delgado. So this is the last issue of Darth Vader, which has been fantastic. And this one is also a much longer issue. This is like 40-something pages. In the last issue, Dr. Afra had walked into the Emperor's throne room and basically spilled all the shit that Darth Vader has been up to. Most of the things he's been up to. She reveals later she didn't reveal Luke, but she told him all about the robberies and trying to build, you know, a secret empire within the empire and all of that. And you think that Vader is going to get, you know, his ass handed to him by the Emperor. So the Emperor is like running down his list of crimes. And he's basically like, excellent. (laughs) You've learned the lessons of the dark side very well. I'm so pleased that you plotted to murder and betray me and seize power for yourself. That's all over now. Let's not continue that, but good for you for trying. You're so evil. I'm delighted. You're learning very well. So he's like telling him, like, I'm going to leave you alone with Dr. Afra, and whatever you do to her is up to you. So he takes Afra to the airlock and he's going to basically eject her out into space. And she's like begging with him, like, no, please, you promised me that when the time came, it would be quick and painless that you would, you know, lightsaber me to death, which is horrible, but it's not freezing and suffocating in space and vader is just like i promised you nothing and then throws her in the (laughs) airlock darth vader is a stone cold badass they continue to nail the way he composes himself and his line it never does it point pray don't alter the deal any further that same kind of feeling from him then there's that really effective great panel of afra crying in the airlock because she knows what's going to happen to her and she gets jettisoned out into space and you just see her kind of floating there in space and this is where you realize afra's kind of a badass herself. I mean, not realize. We've known this the whole time, but her plans go just as deep as Vader's do. So she's called her murder droids to her to come pick up her body, and she's fucked up from being out in space. You know, she's got, like, burns all over her and and all of that, but she's alive. And she says that this is the only way that she could figure a way out of it, because she knew Vader would never use his lightsaber on her, because he's inherently cruel and a liar. So he was going to kill her in the cruelest way possible, which was throwing her out into space. She was kind of betting on him betraying her and now everyone thinks she's dead so they can kind of go on with their own stuff so which we now know dr afra is getting her own comic written by karen gillen so that'll be pretty awesome this whole thing was just really, really great. There's some stuff I skipped over, too, because there's three basic plot lines that are going throughout this. So this is the main thrust of Vader and Afra, which is the part that I definitely was the most interested in. But there's also a whole final confrontation with the guy who uses the biomechanical creatures in there. There's a really cool part where the admiral who had basically been plotting against Vader gets killed, Glee, for being incompetent. And then the new guy, he asks him how long it'll take him to prepare the ship. And he's like, oh, it'll take a month. He's like, you have two weeks. And he's like, you know, that's impossible. We can't do it in two weeks. He's like, you sound an awful lot like the previous Admiral. He's like, two weeks. We can do it in two weeks. I always like to see Vader threatening people. The good Vader lines, part where he's fighting the biotechno guy and all his clones come out. He's like, all you do is allow me to kill you multiple times to my pleasure. Or something like that. I was like, yeah, that's a good line. That seems very Vader-like. This whole run on Darth Vader has been a joy to read. It's, in my opinion, been the best of the Star Wars books, hands down. The regular Star Wars book is pretty strong, too, but Vader has a special, like, little dark place in my heart. 
it's been just full of just awesome Darth Vader moments. They know how to use the character, not overuse him, not make him too chatty. Just this kind of dark, menacing figure. And they've given us characters that we here really love. And clearly other people do too, because Dr. Afra and her murder bots and Black Criston, who I'm not crazy about, but he looks pretty mm-hmm. cool anyway. They're getting their own book. They've hit a home run with this, I feel. I feel almost like vindicated in a way where when they announce that, I'm like, someone loves her and the droids as much as us. <laughs> Afra was definitely my main focus, but this one was just filled with great Vader one lines and the emotion in the drawing when she's in that airlock is phenomenal. Yeah, Afra surprised me. I thought she was dead yeah. as shit. I was gonna bet hard money that she was gonna be dead at the end of this run. I had read this issue before I found out she was getting a mm-hmm. new series. So when she was in the airlock, I was like, damn, I guess there was only one way this could end. But I was wrong. <laughs> There's another equally awesome yeah. way that doesn't feel like it cheated at all for it to end, too. I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the Tuscan Raider the Tuscan thing? Raider story. <laughs> <laughs> that was a surprise. I wasn't expecting that. Oh my god, that was fucking awesome. So none of it, you don't have any actual information about it other than the initial Star Wars thing where it's basically telling you that on vacation, Darth Vader would go Tuscan Raider hunting. <laughs> One time he goes and he slaughters a village just for shits and gigs, you know, it's just what you do. He happens to miss one. This is all told pantomime, so the guy goes off and he survives and other sand people find him. I assume another tribe. So you can see that he's like explaining what happened, you know, they all got killed off and then later on <laughs> what looks like a grand high poobah, like high priest or leader of this new tribe that he's been brought into, he seems to tell this story and it's kind of cool the way they do it because it looks like it's painted on cloth. Tells this story of of Vader looks like a yeah. demon in this. There's some like magic wielding, sword wielding demon that's like a doom for like the rest of everybody else. <laughs> and so like they make this like big effigy of Vader and then they take the guy who survived and basically tie him to it and fucking light it on fire. <laughs> Welcome to Burning <laughs> yeah, Man. <laughs> the original way. <laughs> Must appease the gods. You're the one who got away. We don't want him coming looking for you, you know? You know, you have to make the sacrifice to this god or it shows up unhappy and slaughters people. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking. I think I will give this four cold dead space. <laughs> I gave it four and a half airlock. I'm going to give it four and a half burning Vader effigies. There. So we got more darkness and murder and betrayals. Yeah, um, this is The Lost Boys, number one. Vertigo Comics, The Lost Girl, part one of six. Written by Tim Seeley and art by Scott Godlewinski. I'm going to start saying that the people who did this comic definitely, if they did not have a love for the 80s movie, The Lost Boys, they definitely did their research really well. I really like how it starts off. It really gives you that homage at the same time, reminder of what that universe and that st- how that story goes. It runs through who all the characters are. I mean, come on. It even shows Saxman. If you're not a fan of Lost Boys, you remember Oily <laughs> Up Beach Saxman. Okay. And so it really does the homage with bringing back the old characters, talking about the Frog Brothers, which is also a little nod to the second movie spinoff thing. And so it comes back after the fact, having showing the characters at the comic book store and they're One's trying to sell the Frog Brothers comics and someone comes in who you clearly know has to be a vampire, which I think her question is a bit of a foreshadow to the rest of the story where she talks about, do you know about the lost underground city of vampires? And he thinks it's a comic book and he starts looking for it. Sam does. And when he turns around, she's gone. He talks about his brother and his brother apparently is still a star and working at an old folks home. And actually, I really like how Star was drawn and the scene where she's leaning on the truck. That's a pretty good drawing. 
Very <laughs> 80s. Corey Feldman's character looked kind of like Corey Feldman. I mean, they do that justice. Basically, it shows the Frog Brothers training with Grandpa, which I think is really funny. So when I got to this point in the story, I was really happy to see the grandfather more included because he was always kind of like my favorite character, the thing I wanted to know more about in the movie. But at the same time, this is where I'm also going to tear into this in a minute. So <laughs> he shows the grandfather at, it looks like what would be like an AA meeting, but it's a hunter's meeting and it's all old people. Kind of reminds me of like veteran of foreign wars meeting. Voting on letting other people in. And they deny the person. I guess this person applies every year. There's a Native American woman. It's a very diverse group, but then there's clearly someone who's a vampire because of the glowing red eyes and hanging out in a tree and they're basically spying on this meeting. Different scenes of them training. The Frog Brothers try to trick Sam, showing him that how he's kind of like an easy mark. And of course, no one's going to want to meet some chick's going to meet him in an alleyway. And they see there's a fire at the community center where the meeting was going down. I did appreciate their plan. I thought they were pretty smart about it. What happens is the grandfather gets to them just in time to show that he got bitten by a vampire. And he basically describes this new set of vampires that are faster, stronger, garlic doesn't bother them, you know, all this other stuff. And he gives them kind of a clue. And then it's not so much that garlic doesn't bother them. It's that they're smarter because they wore the garlic stuff around their neck, but they didn't bite them on the neck. They just went for like their arms or yeah. legs where they didn't have the garlic stuff. And then they knew where they were. They were basically, they were more organized and they planned everything. And they say his grandfather died. And then it ends with... There's one thing I hate. It's all the damn vampire hunters. The reason why I have a big problem with this is that my personal fan theory over the years about Lost Boys is that the grandfather, well, was a hunter, but more importantly was a werewolf. And it kind of played in that whole werewolf versus vampire thing because he had the strong connection with Nanook and he just was kind of all into taxidermy and the hunter and kind of like a gruff, like... My problem was this was that it sucked. <laughs> But yes, it did suck. I'm like, man, why did I pick this? This was bad. There were some things that were okay about it. The Corey mm -hmm. Feldman character really looks like him. That was really good drawing without it looking like it was necessarily mm -hmm. like rotoscoped or something like that. When they show the star, she looks totally 80s awesomeness there. The story is just a story I don't care about. That's the thing. Like, I love the beginning, how they set it up and remind you, but I didn't really care for the story. Like, I it lost my interest. Dude, the grandfather was the best character of all of them. And really, you just took him out like a chump. I'm done with you. What would have elevated this book to a book I would have liked is if, okay, so the grandfather got bitten, right? Shouldn't they have to deal with that? Like, shouldn't they have to either have to find, you know, repeat kind of the plot line, right? Find the head vampire, kill the head vampire before he, or actually have yeah. to kill their grandfather. Either one of those would have been yeah. interesting, but they yeah. don't do either one of those things. Maybe they do in later issues, but they missed a real opportunity to actually make me care about the stakes of what's going on. This is not the worst spinoff of something I've ever seen, but it's also not the best it just is kind of eh. i go with the uh it sucked line that was actually my big problem with this so i'm gonna make a little analogy here if anybody remembers anything that had anything to do with dragon lance back in like the 80s and 90s so this is kind of the same idea sure. okay so what would happen is that the dragon lance novels themselves were fucking awesome and everybody fucking loved them mm -hmm. and then what they would do is they do all these things that were in the setting but what would they would do with those things like whether it be the video game or any any of the RPGs or anything is or any of the pre-made adventures or anything it was always the same thing which is you're following around the main characters and just kind of 
not expanding the world. That's basically the way I felt with this, is that they were basically just rehashing the movie most. At first, I actually thought that that's what they were doing, is like just covering scenes that weren't in the original movie. The timeline that it takes place in was very unclear to me, too might get good but yeah it was a very boring fucking story there's a lot of bullshit that was going on nothing really drew me into it just when it was kind of sort of getting interesting with the werewolves union sitting at the vf dub you know they all die felt to me like it was like the first draft of something that could have been pretty decent you need to be kicked back by the editor and been like of the three or four plot lines you have going let's concentrate on one or two of them and let's add some stuff to the lost boys like let's Mm -hmm. do our homages obviously but let's add to the I feel the same way. I feel it sucked balls and that they should have, there's a lot that they could have done with it that would have made it good. This one just felt really lazy to me. Tim Seeley, who wrote this, is not a bad writer by any stretch of the imagination. So he could have done better if he gave a shit. He could have done a lot better than this, I feel. But obviously, they're just like, fuck it, slap Lost Boys on the title, retell the movie, and we'll sell enough copies to have made it a money worthwhile exactly. thing. Another shitty fucking licensing story. That's why like, sometimes we'll talk about when you see like layouts in other books where they do more than they need to. This is like they did less than they need to. Yeah. Meh on it. I'm not to the totally suck balls line because I definitely think I've seen worse <laughs> pieces of things done. It fell flat. It did not succeed. I can't even care enough about it to say that it sucked balls like Rory. If I gave it to Nanooks. <laughs> I like Nanook. <laughs> I will give it two fantasy world comics. I'm going to give it two flaming grandpas. Our work was decent. Moving on. Here, you're going to get some werewolves, Chris. This should make you happy. Good old Moon Knight. <laughs> Why couldn't they have the artwork match the cover? That's all I have to say. Oh, they, they like to confuse people like that. <laughs> <laughs> Moon Knight is going to confuse the shit out of you. That's that's Francis Francavilla. That's the cover, definitely. This, this is Moon Knight. You're, you're not supposed to know what the fuck's going on. <laughs> so we've got Moon Knight number seven, Marvel Comics Incarnations Part 2 of 4, written by Jeff Lemire, art by Francis Francavilla and James Stokes. So we return back to Space Moon Knight, the really weird fucking arc that was going on in the previous issues. And it turns out these wolves have taken over Earth in this version. So Moon Knight's basically got all these alter egos that he kind of, his consciousness, Mark Spector's consciousness, bounces back and forth between. So one of them is an alternate reality or end or future where all these werewolves have taken over the Earth. Basically all of mankind is just on the moon in like this base, and that's what Moon Knight does with his other moon knights is they protect against the space wolves which is kind of dumb <laughs> <laughs> it's weird gotta say i've never seen a werewolf flying a spaceship before so they get in this big giant dog fight there's a big ass spaceship and then part way through specter like flashes back and forth from one personality to another from one world to another so he's he goes from the spaceship to he's in the taxi he flashes back and then he flashes forward again and he managed to get frenchie killed in what i assume is both realities seems like both yeah and it's that nice intercutting between the two art styles to make it make what could be really confusing yes. pretty clear to me. Yes, if they kept the same art style, it would have definitely made it much more confusing. And then the funny thing is Moon Knight himself is getting all fucked up because he's space moon knight is on the moon with the taxi he's like completely confused and flashing back and forth. And it's really confusing, but it's confusing in the right way intentionally confusing, not because it's poorly written. Show his confusion, essentially, as he's jumping back and forth between these different personalities. Comes back to him going and dueling with Lupinar, and Lupinar is 
basically goes crashing through the dome of the moon base, dueling it out with Lupinar, and there's like all these werewolves coming in and stuff. And then he flashes the last second as he's about to get coup de grade. Right as he's about to get coup de grade by Lupinar, the, the leader of the werewolf people, it flashes forward and he's at the diner. He's looking for Gina. As he walks in, he talks about, oh, wouldn't you know it's a full moon? It's getting weirder and weirder. And wouldn't you know it's a full moon? And he walks into this big butchered up diner. And then the cops show up. It's kind of funny because, you know, Lupinar is like biting him in one reality, telling him to come to the werewolf side. And then in this one, he's walks into what appears to be he murdered a bunch of people, or could have. Yeah, and the cops call him by name, not like, hey, mysterious stranger, drop it. They are like, hey, Mark Spector. This one's really, really confusing. Much more so than your normal Moon Knight issue. (laughs) Yeah, it was full of some weird space werewolves and murders. Space werewolves part has probably been like the least interested I have been in all of these plot lines. Like the rest of them are, are great and interesting and I dig them. The space werewolves thing is just now. <laughs> so I have high hopes and I want to like it, but this weird eighties, like it's from the heavy metal comic series looking artwork can <laughs> fucking go out the window it is weird, horribly drawn bad. Lupinar looks like a weird eighties hair band snaggle to three jacks. Now when the werewolves are all falling out and it's showing them attacking, those ones have snouts and they're blue and they're furry. I can get behind them even though they're weird psychedelically tripped out drawings. Those versions are okay. <laughs> but that Lupinar dude, nah. He can just go. It's just done. Like the diner scenes, okay, those those are kind of stylistic and cool. I can get that. They look like they got ran through a Prisma filter. Strong color tones. But man, I cannot get behind the style of the drawings of the space ones and it just it super turns me off and makes me mad the ones you're talking about the ones yeah. in the diner that are that you do like that's francisco francavia and then the other one is james stoko not a fan it just distracted me it kind of made me angry i was just like i would be down with space astronaut werewolves you know fighting but <laughs> not with this artwork they gotta go I do like things that are different. The regular werewolves are tearing into people, and there's like three or four of them, Mm -hmm. like each one like eating a limb of someone, basically. Yeah. That's pretty cool. And them all pouring out of the spaceships, that's cool looking. Lupinar looks kind of lame. I shared them pouring out of stuff. Like that panel, I shared that earlier this weekend, and that's cool. That was probably the only panel of that I like. I'm going to be a real dick with this one, and I'm going to say that this, this section that we're complaining about, this is about how I drew when I was in junior high. It's not really crisp and clean. There's a lot of things that could have saved this, and just there's... Like, it's a style I've seen before. I just, I don't like it. <laughs> Poor James Stokoe. <laughs> we do not like his work, apparently. I mean, I don't mean to trash his work or anything like that. It's like, I know that he's definitely got a difficult fucking storyline to fucking draw for, but it's just not visually stunning. It's not three-dimensional at all, I feel. They chose artists who have really distinct styles because they wanted to be clear what time or world you're in or whatever and then just basically told them to go fucking crazy extreme with their stuff oh and he definitely did that he did i don't know if you ever read Orkstein, but that's exactly what this art looks like oh, i see this is him to form this isn't him off his game this is his game yeah it sucks not a fan sorry dude and i love space werewolves <laughs> one of the more disappointing issues of moon knight i'm gonna have to give it two full moons 
three crashed taxis. I thought the Francavilla stuff was awesome, and the Stoko stuff I did not like. One Lupinar is fugly because you may hate space werewolves. <laughs> Damn you. Wow. <laughs> you love werewolves, so if you... Wow, I'm, I'm speechless. Well, on to something else that's guaranteed to make some people <laughs> mad. <laughs> we have a Spider-Man event. This is part of the Dead No More event. This is the Clone Conspiracy number one from Marvel Comics, part one, Land of the Living. Written by Dan Slott, pencils by Jim Chung, art by John Dell, colors by Justin Ponzer. I have not liked Spider-Man for a while. Like, I like the Miles Morales stuff. That stuff's great. But the actual Amazing Spider-Man, I do not like it because they're trying to turn him into Tony Stark. You know, he's a rich billionaire. He's an industrialist. You know, he has a bodyguard who people think is him. Like, the whole thing, they're just totally ripping off from Iron Man. I don't like that at all. This one, though, doesn't really dwell too much on that. So I think this kind of stands alone from that, which is good because I hate that stuff. And I actually kind of like this. I like this one a lot. I felt the art on this was really, really strong. I felt the story had a lot of, like, emotional impact to it. So basically the story is... Aunt May's husband, who is J. Jonah Jameson's father, has died. And they're at a uh, funeral. And of course, once again, people are blaming Peter Parker for someone's death. Hmm. And you find out that this actually may kind of be his fault, but maybe he had a good reason for it. Because you find out that there's this research company that he's like invested in that has created this ability to fix people basically and there was a member of like parker industries who had a industrial accident and they used him because originally peter parker didn't want to use aunt may's husband as a guinea pig and he felt bad when this accident happened because he was kind of forced to use this other guy as the guinea pig after it was all done the guy was all healed but when he went to go shake his hand he got the spider senses tingling so he knows something's wrong but it spider senses just tell him there's danger it doesn't tell him what's dangerous in a moment of Peter Parker being pretty smart, and injects like a little spider tracker into him. So then he's meeting up with, I don't know if you guys read The Superior Spider-Man, which a lot of people was very controversial, but I really liked it, where Doc Ock ends up possessing Peter Parker's body. The little girl, the scientist, uh, not little girl, she's a woman. Yes. The little person. Let's go with that. She's from that. She was actually Peter Parker's girlfriend while Dr. Octopus was possessing him, but they're still like friends. And she knows what happened. He's, you know, explained it to her and all that. So she's she's still cool with it. So they go to visit the family, the, the first guy. So they go to this house and you find out the wife and husband took a camping trip and the wife forgot his medicine that he needs to keep his body from rejecting the, the stuff. And basically collapses in pain. The biomedical research people come to get him and basically tell her, if you ever want to see your husband again, don't say shit to anybody. Peter Parker is, you know, this is part of the Parker family and I'm going to get my people back and, you know, all of that. So he has a tracker in the guide so he can track him to where he's at. So you see some pretty cool images of Spider-Man, you know, looking kind of like classic Spider-Man. A little bit of the glowing spider on his chest, which is stupid. But overall, he looks pretty classic. Kind of those weird contorted positions that no human being could possibly get into that he does sometimes. So he's in this, doing this industrial espionage, you know, crawling through air shafts and, you know, breaking into secret labs. And he finds the body of the guy in this tube thing. Like, back to tank. Yeah, he's like a back to tank. But his skin is either gone or transparent. So all you can see are like bones and blood vessels and organs and stuff like that. 
His nerves, his eyes, and his brain. Spider-Man's looking at it, and he's like, oh, shit, what have they done to you? And then he sees the eyes are, like, actually looking at him, like, following him around. He's like, oh, my God, you're still alive. Obviously, the, whatever they've done has some serious side effects. So a scientist, you know, stumbles in and is like, oh, my God, call security. And Spider-Man's like, do you really think some Renicops are going to stop me? And that's when the Rhino and a new version of Electro show up. They both look yes. really awesome. Mm-hmm. The Rhino looks badass in this. Yeah, he's well thrown. Um, and the new, I like with the stuff with the new Electro, because Spider-Man's, like, trying to figure it out. He's like, what the hell? Are you female Electro? Are you, what are you? Did they drop a chromosome? I think it was one of them. <laughs> yeah. And which is funny, because you think he's just fucking with her, but what he's actually trying to figure out, is she new or old? Yeah. Has the old guy been turned into a woman somehow or whatever? And when he finds out that she's new, he's like, oh good, then you don't know these old tricks. And then rips a water line out of the wall and like sprays both of them to shock them and knock them out. That line and that part was my favorite part of the book. Two or three pages of Spider-Man fighting Rhino and Electro, and then, you know, using his tricks and quips back and forth to fight them it's pretty awesome and then at the end there's two things that are just amazing so there's do not enter locked door that spider-man goes to and like rips it off and inside is dun 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 gwen stacy is back so peter is totally stunned by this and i like gwen stacy's just totally casual out she's like hey long time no see that was interesting to me that she's back but that's not all because that's when doc ock who is dead and has been dead for a long time comes out from behind him and attacks him because he's so distracted by gwen stacy and they all look great oh, these spider-man yes. villains look fantastic yeah i can't praise the art high enough looks like classic spider-man and it's also interesting too because when he first meets gwen stacy his spider senses don't go off like she's not a danger to him and then his spider senses do go off and he's like what the hell and that's when doc ock attacks yeah. him and then there's a really good backup story called The Night I Died, which is basically Gwen Stacy's death from kind of her point of view, which is interesting because it tells of a story right up to the point where she dies, and then it just goes black, and she doesn't remember anything after that. And then it shows her getting out of her regeneration tube, and the jackal is there, and the jackal is basically telling her, not a villain, I'm here to make the world a better place, and I want you to help me do it because... I'm not inherently a good person, but you are. And with you by my side, you'll kind of be my moral compass and keep us on the right path. She's not too interested in it. And he's like, there's this pill you can take. It's obviously the pill that the other guy has to take. That if you take it, you'll live. And if you don't, you'll die. And it's half of it's red and half of it's blue. So it's very much like the Matrix. What choice are you going to make? So she is not sure what she's going to do. And he guides her through the lab and brings her to see the new clone, which is her father, Captain Stacy. So she hugs him. There's tears. And then you have this panel where she takes the pill, and then it kind of ends with a jackal, just a close-up of him, his smile. His evil-ass, creepy smile. I was not going into this with high hopes. Spider-Man clones have had a long and storied history of not being very good, but I enjoyed every single thing about this issue. I really liked this. I thought it cut right to the heart of the character of Gwen Stacy and Peter's kind of relationship. I was very impressed with it. The artwork was phenomenal. I did the story. It's It was a decent little Halloween story start-off kind of thing. So I'm digging on that. I'm kind of with you with, like, with what you were saying is how they're trying to turn him into Iron Man. I wasn't digging on that. It didn't feel very Peter Parker to me. I really like the artwork again. Yeah, you know, we all seem to agree on that. So yeah, I agree. I don't think we need more billionaire superhero playboys. Iron Man does that. I understand that Peter's smart. He could definitely do that sort of thing but the whole point of it is that he was kind of like a poor i mean i know he's growing up and they're trying to move on with that i just don't like the direction they're going i think it'd make more sense if he had someone who was sponsoring him never been a huge 
Gwen and Peter storyline thing, I always just kind of want to go back to him and MJ. I, I understand a lot of people love that their relationship and it was its own thing and it's in history so it's fine i really like seeing the villains that creepy close-up of the smile for the second story i thought that was a really great panel i liked um that the conversations and the quips felt very peter-like so i think they did a good job with this one where i understand i didn't go into it thinking it was going to be that good i thought it was just kind of oh great another spider book pleasantly surprised i ended up giving this four and a half rhinos i gave it three and three quarters all the old tricks i'm gonna give it three and a half shelectras so marvel now has launched and we're in the second week of marvel now books so we've got some in here to go over. So Great Lake Avengers number one, Marvel Comics. Same old, same old Great Lake Avengers written by Zach Gorman. Pencils and inks by Will Robson and colors by It's My Tamara Bond villain. Ah, oh, yes. I love her. <laughs> this is a very strange book. So apparently with when Tony faked his death, he lost the rights to the Avengers name that he trademarked. And at some point, and these are some deep cuts, back in the day, there was the Great Lake Avengers and is it Flatman? Yeah, Flatman. Flatman had the foresight to try to copyright it before they told him, you guys can't be Avengers and you suck. And so I guess by default, when Tony went gone, it reverted to the person who last applied for it. And so the Avengers lawyer was about to go on a date with the Captain America lookalike, apparently. I want more about that story, personally. Cancels her swipe right date and goes to tell him, well, these are yours, but we want to buy the rights back from you. There's some negotiation and basically... They can be some sort of weird Avengers, but they own the rights kind of thing. So he calls all his old buddies. One is Big Bertha, a girl who's chubby and she can change her mass at will and shape. Flatman. He calls Squirrel Girl, but she actually is doing okay for herself and not a loser, I guess. And so she's hanging with like yeah. like Falcon and like some other ones and she's like ignoring her phone. <laughs> and then there's the weird Death Angel guy called where he ferries Doorman. Doorman. He ferries people like to the afterlife or dimension or something. And he's kind of like phasing in and out and being weird. And they're all keep on talking about Immortal Man and you know, they don't want to talk around Big Bertha because she's gonna get upset or whatever. And they're like riding an R V from like Wisconsin to Michigan and because they got their first mission and they got uh, headquarters given to them by regular Avengers and basically it seems like they're kind of giving like kiddie pool jobs throwing them a bone basically it seems so they can get name back weirdly there's a part of the story where it has a cute little blue haired girl drawing little like comic book anime characters on her computer her talking to her brother some bad guy flaming dude like shoots through their house (laughs) This is my favorite part, by the way. <laughs> like, seedless villain. Is this like Forkman or whatever <laughs> yeah, the guy's name fork is? Man. <laughs> fork me. And yeah. the flame guy are like having at it like in the cul-de-sac. Girl wants to know what happened to her brother, so she jumps down and he's been like, get lost, little girl, or whatever. And uh, she turns into a big fuck-off blue werewolf. And I'm like, yeah. And she's a well-drawn yes. werewolf. Suck it, Moon Knight. <laughs> the guy's like, 
good boy, good boy, like the pitchfork dude. And she's like, wish, nice wishful thinking or something. She says like that. And she's like, she's growling at him, which I thought was really cute. Because back to them in the RV. And so they get to like this bad area town and like this warehouse, which is supposed to be their headquarters. <laughs> they got gifted an abandoned warehouse in yeah. Detroit. <laughs> Not the best real estate in the world. In the bad part of Detroit, too. And then they're met by some little like pop goth girl who basically has this immortal phone. And she's like, well, I'm going to show up. They got some random chick who had their phone because they weren't trying to oh. confirm who was receiving their messages before giving them their I just assumed that they had the wrong number and she just showed up just because. She says I had his phone or something like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think she has the phone. Or maybe the phone number got she picked up the maybe. phone number from when he discontinued his service or but something. It's really funny because there's villains down the street and they see them moving in and they're like, you tell the boss. No, you tell the boss. And so there's a cute little like interaction between these villains basically saying, hey, we got some, I guess, heroes moving in down the street. <laughs> yeah, the new neighbors are... And then it cuts to a scene where it shows this immortal guy, the one they've been talking up and looking for this whole time, chilling in a graveyard inside of a coffin and completely bored out of his mind because he can't die, but he has nothing else to do, I guess. And so he's like sitting there sighing, feeling sorry for himself. (laughs) My favorite part was the panel at the end where he has all their mug shots and, you know, good boy, the werewolf, it says that. But if you read the part underneath, it says, send us your stories. Like, are you good at anything? Extraordinary abilities? Write us and tell us. We'll take anybody. We'll take anybody. Are you good at Jenga? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Can you eat a lot of marshmallows? Like, our standards are low. Yeah. So I totally just want to write something wacky in there and send it in because I'm like, that appeals to you me. your Great Lakes Avengers card? Yes, because that made me laugh so hard and that's really funny. That part to me made the book. The rest of it was, okay, I really like the girl werewolf who's a little anime fan that spoke to me. I gave it three and a half good boys. <laughs> I'm going to give it... uh, I thought it was pretty fucking funny. So I'm going to give it, yeah, three and a half goth girls. I will give it three and a half Winnebago's. (laughs) And Rory, I got you. All right, we got Mosaic. Marvel Comics uh, Moon Indigo, written by Jeffrey Thorne. Art by Carrie Randolph. Colors by Emilio Lopez. This one was interesting. (laughs) I don't know anything about Mosaic. I've never read Mosaic before. It starts off with the main character who is just a badass at basketball, badass pro basketball player. Oh, he's a new character. They talk about that at the end of the book. So nobody's read Mosaic. Yeah, well, I was confused because Stan Lee did cut on his Powell Entertainment had a Mosaic character, but it was a girl. And so at first I was confused thinking it was that. A different Mosaic, huh? Pro basketball player. And he's going, he wins, wins the game for the team, wins MVP again. And he's talking about how, you know, there's some people who are, are you know, grinders who are just going out there and they just got to sweat out every single game. And there's some people who are like made for it. He's like talking about how he's made for it, made for the game. It's like, what if LeBron? James got superpowers. So he's talking about how badass he is and all that stuff, and you know he's kind of on top of the world. So he's going to a party where Tony Stark's around, so that so he could get some more international, world level sponsors and stuff like that. And at one point or another, his team members come in and they're like. They're fucking pissed. They're sick of his bullshit. They're like, you know, you're acting like, you know, we haven't been on the team and da, 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 and he throws it back in their face. You know, it's like, hey, last five years we've gotten five rings and before then you had shit. So you guys were rotating with your asses on the bench. So he's basically like talking shit to him, talking about how badass he is and stuff like that. And so then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Terrigen Mist just happens to pop up. And surprise, surprise, he's cocooned. When he comes out of this, he's like this weird 
energy blue creature. He's like kind of like taking steps towards everybody that's in the room around the egg. And then his girlfriend hits him with a taser or something like that because she's getting freaked out. So he like explodes out the window. And then as he's falling, he hits this other guy, Fife, who just happens to be walking down the street. And I guess couldn't like hear what was going on or something like that. He like wasn't aware of what was going on. So he fuses with his personality and then it shows like this cool like scene where he's showing him he's fusing with the guy and he's like learning all about what the guy's all about. What happens is there's like some like girl that like tries to stop the kid who looks like he's hurt and then he once again they fuse again with this other personality. Some lady like thinks that the guy's like done something to the kid because he's like laying on the ground. He runs off and then banker looking guy jumps on the subway. He's trying to figure out what he's going to do. He's trying to call his pops. He tried texting his girlfriend. She didn't believe it was him it's different phones different numbers like he that he's using it's like who's this guy from korea texting me then he's kind of like there's some guys that like kind of give him some shit on the subway and then next thing you know he fuses with that guy too so he's got like all these different personalities he's drug in and he can jump from point to point he's with this character beto they go and they meet up with this chick that's got this badass fucking ride they're going to like some sort of event they're going to basically knock over this place where the Russian gang members, they have like tons of cash. But every once in a while, they disappear and they only leave one guy to guard the thing. And that guy always goes and gets a sandwich from a roach coach, basically. <laughs> so they go in, mm-hmm. they sneak in. He's able to like control this guy. Even though he's in like the saddle, he can like use these people's abilities to uh, work on things, do whatever he's doing. So he opens it up. And there's this big ass thing. There's this big ass thing of cash in this vault. As they're going out with all this cash, they run into one of the Russian mafia members, and the guy ends up shooting at them all, and that one gets shot. Is that He basically jumps around a bunch of different people, and he's kind of like figuring out his abilities, and he ends up getting one of them killed. And I don't really know what they're going to do with this character yet. But it's interesting. It's an interesting power, I think. It was confusing to me. I think in a way it was intentionally so, though, because since he's obviously an inhuman, I think that's kind of like the theme with inhumans, is that they're really like kind of confused when their powers initially manifest. Overall, I like the artwork, and I think the concept is neat of jumping and sharing different parts of people. I think that's really neat to explore. I'm not quite sure it was executed in a way that made sense. I liked it. I I didn't think it was super horrible. I do wish they could have advanced the plot a little bit more. Curious enough to see what this number two is going to be, but I'm going to give it three cracked phone screens. I give it two and a half carriage and miss. I will give it two and a half Korean cell phones. So then I have one for us as well. I have Solo number one from Marvel Comics, written by Jerry Duggan and Jeffrey Thorne, art by Paco Diaz, colors by Israel Silva. So this one is basically, to me, a combination of The Punisher and Deadpool, which mm-hmm. makes sense because the writer, Jerry Duggan, is the person who writes Deadpool. So how much of that is the character being like Deadpool and how much of that is just the way Jerry Duggan writes is Deadpool? I'm not sure. But essentially, you have this guy whose family, this is the part that reminds me of the Punisher, whose family was killed by terrorists, so now he fights terrorists. Then he does mercenary jobs because fighting terrorists doesn't actually pay very well if you're not part of the government. There's this whole thing with Dum Dum Duggan. This actually just kind of loops around with this. There's a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent who's gone missing and they're trying to figure out how to get him back. And it shows you, then it cuts to... Solo, 
But before they do that, they have this line with Dum Dum where the other shield agents are talking to him and they, you know, call him Dum Dum. And he's like, only my friends call me Dum Dum and all my friends are dead. So you can call me Commander. So I thought that was a kind of a neat little line. And then at the end of the book, he repeats the same line, but he's like, only my friends and <laughs> Hitler call me Dum Dum and they're both dead. So I thought that was a nice little repeating of the line and adding to it a little bit. So Solo is like doing his whole like Wolverine, like I'm the best I am at what I do. And he's on this job with this other guy who's like, wow, you're really good at hiding. I can't see you anywhere. And then you realize he's at the wrong location. <laughs> he's a fuck up, apparently. So then he has to run like really fast to get to the job in time to to do it. And then they break into this bank vault that's not the collector, but it's the is it the toy master or the some supervillain has this these vaults that stash things at. And Solo has been hired to go in and get something from the vault. So he's talking to his wife or girlfriend, I'm not sure who she is, and he's setting off like the voice recognition software because he's saying things that don't tie up with any of their codes because he's having a one-sided conversation while he's in the vault. And the voice keeps telling him, syntax error, please repeat. He's going through the vault and trying to pick the lock and he finally reaches the maximum number of errors and they're like, you're not the person who owns this vault. Begin destruction sequence. So he finds this little dog. This part was actually pretty funny to me. So he finds this little dog, like the kind of dog that would fit in your purse kind of dog with like a little tuxedo and top hat on. Baron Peepers is the dog's name. So there's like this total 80s like action sequence of all these explosions and stuff and he's running around with this ridiculous dog tucked under his arm and then finally he gets out of there and gets recruited by S.H.I.E.L.D. to be one of their agents. He has some skills but he's also completely deniable that he's part of S.H.I.E.L.D. and completely expendable. That was Solo. It was kind of funny at parts but it wasn't hilarious. It was just mildly funny. First of all the 90s called and they want their fucking uniform back. It looks like he's wearing a fucking like a fucking thong on his face you know. It's just like come on. (laughs) Thought we were past that comics. (laughs) It's funny at parts (laughs) but yeah it just feels like Punisher and Deadpool and slap them together. Stick them in a 90s costume. I'd say just read Deadpool. Because it's the same writer, but it's yeah. a better character. So I, I don't nope. see much reason for this yeah, to exist. The dog part was the only part that I thought was like really funny that caught my interest at all. I give it three barren peepers. I gave it two and a half. It's a kill bot. I'm going to give it one and three quarters fucking thongs on your face. Tired of that fucking costume. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all okay. right, Carissa, bring us home from DC. Yeah. Detective Comics number 942. DC Comics, Night of the Monster Men, Finale! Written by Steve Orlando, pencils and inks by Anne McDonald, and colors by John Roche. This is picking up with the rest of the Monster Men, the Night of the Monster Men series, so if you've been following along, you already know what's going down. They're all running off to different Wayne Towers, and they kind of, like, activate them, which reminds me of very Voltron, you know? Oh, it's so Voltron. Oh, I, I thought for sure they were going to turn into a Mecha Voltron thing. I was so disappointed. That's what I thought was going to happen, too. I was like, they're going to turn into, like, Mecha buildings and they're gonna fight like guide you that would have been so crazy awesome yeah if you're gonna jump the shark just jump it completely you know yeah i kind of that kind of soured me for the rest of the book because then it didn't happen and i was super sad and they so set it up to happen too the fact that all three of us independently read it and we're like voltron they're gonna turn into fucking voltron but they didn't no all it was was giant effing guns on the top of the building while their symbols glowed on it basically said like oh if i want to take out nightwing let's go over to to force, you know, 
come for me. <laughs> That's where my target is. So why else have the weird glowing symbol? It just didn't make any sense unless they were going to turn to effing mechas. And they're shooting at it, trying to contain the weird shark monster mouth thing, which I'm not a fan of. And so <laughs> Batman confronts English James and he's sitting on his throne of psychology books. I like the little drawings in the background of his room where it has diagrams and brains and there's like a little Venn Batman yeah. things about him and the Vitruvian Batman in the background and like all sorts of little diagrams which I thought were cute. Clayface has put a barrier around this building to like block him in. He's my favorite thing about Detective Comics. Clayface is great. His little like squished flattened face on the window like how long can he breathe in here? <laughs> I love Clayface. I just love what they've done with him. He's kind of like a weird eh, villain before. He's the Chewbacca of this comic, and I love it. <laughs> or the Groot of this comic. I don't know. I love him. So they have their thing where he's basically saying all these monsters represent your failures as Batman, and I'm going to be the Batman they need. And they have this, you know, whole talk. And then Nightwing decides to fuck off and jump into the into the mouth of the beast. <laughs> he has the antidote to yeah. turn it back, but the needle is uh-huh. broken. Got to get it in there somehow. No, don't. He's already taken off that listening to them. And so, you know, he does a little swan dive in there. And then there's like venom and weird monster goosh throughout the city. And it's gross and pink and everywhere. Reminds me when he dives off there. Reminds me of in uh, Buffy where she's like, uh, was it death is my gift? And she dives into the portal. It did have that look. Right into the mouth of a shark. So you must have loved that. Well, that's what it looks like. It looks like a freaking shark maw going on. It's such a huge fucking steaming pile of shit. This whole fucking series has from the fucking get-go. I'm not interested in watching Batman fight a bunch of goddamn Godzilla fucking freak monsters running through the city. They're not even doing anything intelligent with it. They're just roaming around smashing buildings until Batman figures out how to fucking, or one or one of the team decides how to fucking hurt him. If that wasn't bad enough that they've had these big old fucking blood Godzilla fucking monster men running around. It's like jump the shark already and make him fight with mechs. <laughs> when I saw the Voltron scene, I was like, oh no, they're not. No, please don't do this to me. And then they don't. And I'm like, you cock tease. What the fuck? <laughs> like you've already fucked this up bad enough. It was bad enough that you've done what you've done so far. But then it's like you play with the balls, but then you don't go the fucking rest of the way. What the fuck? So they should have worked the shaft Jesus more. Jesus fucking what Christ! Doing? What is wrong with you people? Starting a fucking Voltron reference and then just and making it into guns on top of towers. I've hated this whole fucking series, and I've been trying to hold on with it. And this one just fucking just really made me hate this fucking shit. I had a slightly different impression of this issue. I feel like this has gone on a little bit too long. I will give you that, that it got kind of repetitive. After maybe two issues or whatever, I'm like, I get it. There are monsters. They're fighting them. I I get all that. I don't need it repeated over and over and over again. I did like that each monster was supposed to represent what Hugo Strange thought Batman's weaknesses were. So it's kind of like symbolic monsters, I guess, that form into this one giant monster. And at the end, you have the characters saying, Strange is right about what makes up Batman. You know, that childhood and pride and like all these things, that's all true. But he thinks they're weaknesses and they're actually fuel for Batman. Really, really liked that in the end, the confrontation between Batman and Hugo Strange did not come down to punching. Each one was using their brains, basically. Hugo Strange knows that Batman won't kill anybody, so he's rigged himself up in a, like a dead man suit that'll explode if there's more than you know so much pressure on it. So Batman can't just punch him. So he's given his whole monologue going on about how he's, you know, the Batman the city deserves, like 
needs, all that kind of stuff. And Batman's just like, keep talking, motherfucker. And you find out that Clayface has covered up the entire top of the building and sealed it off. So Hugo Strange is like suffocating and then passes out. And Batman isn't wearing any, like, breathing apparatus. He's just like, I can hold my breath for a long time. And, he, and Batman's not actually saying, which makes sense when you look mm-hmm. back at the panels, is Hugo Strange is just running his mouth, and Batman's just kind of standing there giving him the silent bat treatment. But it's obviously because he's trying not to talk, because he knows he needs to be holding his breath. So I thought that was kind of cool. It was a very not-Batman story to me. It wasn't... I gave it three, turn those skyscrapers into meccas. I'm gonna give it one bat team go, unite, fucking Captain Planet, whatever, how you want to call it. This sucked. Clearly, I have a very different than you. I will give it four suffocating Hugo Stranges. Horrible. (laughs) Pretty good. (laughs) So... Those were the books we read this week. To check out our weekly pull list and other nerd shenanigans, go check out fourcolornerds.com and our Facebook page, also called Four Color Nerds. You can follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music. On Stitcher. On SoundCloud. And on Podcast Addict. Apparently, we also have a second podcast for PC gaming for the cheap and broke, which I am not on, called the Four Color Nerds Broke Gaming. Make sure you subscribe and rate the podcast and come on back next week for another episode. Until then, keep reading, nerds. Voltron powers unite.